Hey, this is Dr. Mike Barnett. It is an awesome privilege to fill the pulpit every Sunday at the First Baptist Church of Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Having you listen to our messages on this podcast is an incredible blessing as well, and I pray that you will be encouraged in the Lord as you listen. It is vital that you commit yourself and your family to the Lord through the ministry of a local church. While it is a great blessing to have you listen to our messages, no one will be able to minister the Word of God to you or your family like a local pastor. So please do not consider this podcast as a replacement for your presence in your local church on Sunday. Be faithful, get connected, and God bless. Amen. I, uh, I'm preparing sermons through 2 Samuel for um, early next year, beginning early next year, and, and I was having some issues with some of the personalities in 2 Samuel, you know, what motivated them, and, and so... I'm married to a resident theologian, and so I got in our sitting room the other day, and I said, I'm going to need your help. I want you to read with me through 2 Samuel, and I want you to give me insight into some of these personalities, because nobody, nobody has discernment about personalities and motives and better than a lady. Amen. Husbands, if your wife ever says... I know you like him, but there's something amiss. You better listen. Amen. And so she'd been giving me some great insight. And then we got to that scene in 2 Samuel where David says to Abner, I'll listen to you on one condition. You bring Michael, my wife that I was married to, that Saul took away from me. You've got to bring her back to me. And so Abner goes and gets his wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, David's wife, and they're walking along, and her new husband is crying and following after. And I said, well, tell me what you think about that guy. And she asked me the question, well, what if they came and got me? What would you do? And I, I, I said, okay, we got to, we, we got to, well, I would cry and weep. I understand. Amen. So anyway... A, a, lot, a good wife will give you good insight into people. And we're going to preach on that. I may let her preach that sermon. But anyway, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah, beginning with verse 10. If you have a Bible like mine, it's on page 799. If you don't, I cannot help you. But uh, you'll, you, you know where it is. Obadiah. We are going through this book. Uh, together, we are in our fourth message, and we will consider our sixth principle about God today. We are looking at eight principles, major principles from the most minor prophet as we journey through Obadiah. We've already considered five, and today we look at the sixth principle. Let's read together verse 10 and following. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, Shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. This is Obadiah preaching uh, concerning Edom. And he says, In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou... Wast as one of them. 
but thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother and the day when he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have uh, spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. These verses remind me of a trial lawyer at work in court. In verse 10, he gives an opening statement, a very general statement, and he states that the nation of Edom is worthy of the highest penalty the law allows for a crime, a serious crime, and that would be the removal from planet earth. That would be the death penalty as a nation. And then in verses 11 through 14, he gives a step-by-step detail of the crimes committed. And from this, we glean a sixth principle. God holds us accountable for how we treat others. God holds you accountable for how you treat others. It was the murderer, Cain, who with great sarcasm and ridicule and trying to deny his guilt, asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer was not even worth a verbal response, but it was certainly he was granted an action of Almighty God, and the answer was yes. You are your brother's keeper, and you are responsible And you are accountable for how you treat others. That is a fundamental principle of our text, and that's what we deal with today. So first of all, let me give you the historical background of what's happening here in these verses that we just read. Jerusalem in the Old Testament was invaded on many occasions. Many, many times it was invaded. I think there's at least four times it was invaded that we know about, and uh, biblical historians differ as to when exactly Obadiah preached and which invasion is he addressing when Edom did and did not do these things. There's only really two viable times it could have been, and if you're looking at uh, maybe 50-50, maybe 60-40%, on uh, biblical historians, where they place these two. I have my opinion and, uh, on that, and my views on that, and since I'm the one preaching, that's the one I'm going to tell you about. But um, uh, many say it was during the Babylonian captivity when Nebuchadnezzar came against uh, the whole world, the Mediterranean world, and was successful and conquered the world and would eventually destroy and ransack Jerusalem completely and uh, carry away captive uh, most of the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem and 
uh, and the uh, tribe of uh, Judah would carry him away captive and they would be in captivity for 70 years. That's what uh, many solid and sound biblical historians believe and that's where they place the book of Obadiah. However, I agree with uh, the others who tend to um, place it in um, a different time. I believe it was much earlier than that, an invasion that was earlier than that. Um, And I'm going to tell you why here in a little bit, but let me just show you when this, I I believe this event that Obadiah talks about took place. In 2 Chronicles chapter 21, we have a king of Judah by the name of Jehoram. And Jehoram was a very wicked king. And sinful king. As a matter of fact, it says in chapter 21 of 2 Chronicles, verse 5, Jehoram was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked by the way of the kings of Israel in the northern kingdom. Now, you have the divided kingdom, and in the south, which was Judah, sometimes there was a good king, a godly king, sometimes there was a bad king. But in the north, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, there was never a godly king. They were all wicked and ungodly and, and uh, terrible and sinful and idolatrous. And uh, they led that nation to collapse when the Assyrians would come and take them. Judah lasted somewhat longer. But here we're in a period of time when Jehoram was the king of Judah and he happened to be a sinful and wicked king. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel like as the house of Ahab. And you can study Ahab. He was the one married to Jezebel. And that needs no further explanation. For he had the daughter of Ahab as his wife. And he wrought that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Howbeit, verse 7 says, The Lord would not destroy Judah at that time because of his promise to the house of David. And he, he, he would not destroy. God was being patient and gracious with this wicked king and the nation that he reigned and ruled. Now, during that time, Edom, the subject of Obadiah's preaching, was under subjection. David and Solomon and previous kings of Judah had, had kept the Edomites at bay. As a matter of fact, had them in subjection. But it was under this wicked king Jehoram that the Edomites revolted. There was a great revolt. Chapter 21, verse 8 of 2 Chronicles. And Jehoram went out and uh, took all his chariots and he smote the Edomites. And he captured their arms and their chariots. And and, uh, it was a great victory And the Edomites were subdued once again. But later in that chapter, something interesting happens. Verse uh, 16 says, Moreover, the Lord stirred up against Jehoram. Now let me ask you a question. Can God take wicked and sinful leaders who will lead their nation in sinful and wicked ways, to sinful and wicked ways, and stir up other nations against it to use it as judgment? Well, that's what happened here. 
And that's a principle of God's operation with the nations of the world. And that's what happened here. And the Bible says, The Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians that were near the Ethiopians, telling us where these particular Arab nations came from. And they came unto Judah and break it into it and carried away all the substance that was found in the king's house and his sons also and his wives, so that there was never a son left him save Jehoaz, the youngest of his sons. And it goes on and talks about how Jehoram died a very painful death under the judgment of God. But toward the end of his reign, there was an a Arab and Philistine alliance that came and invaded Judea, broke into Jerusalem, got into the palace, if you will, and stole the king's wealth and took some of his sons and ransacked the place. And it was an awful experience. And Edom's on the sideline, having been subdued again. They're on the sidelines watching all of this. And um, this is the Arab-Philistine invasion, invasion. And that's when I believe the events of Obadiah took place. And there's a couple other reasons, a couple of reasons. First of all, that invasion, the Arab-Philistine invasion, was not a total destruction of the city of Jerusalem. The Bible doesn't describe a, a total ransacked burning of the city. It, it describes a partial invasion and, and, and kind of like a raid, if you will, but it was a big raid. Whereas the Babylonian captivity was total destruction. A second reason is, is Jeremiah chapter 49, he preaches against the Edomites and he seems to quote Obadiah. And that's the big issue or, or the big discussion, if, if you ever discuss it, of, of when did this, these events came place. Did Obadiah quote Jeremiah or did Jeremiah quote Obadiah? Well, the way it's written, uh, Obadiah just says it right out. Jeremiah has these quotes in different places and within the chapter, one part here and one part there, which would indicate to me at least that Jeremiah is quoting Obadiah, which means if Obadiah is the one being quoted, he had to say it first. Because that's one of the qualifications for being quoted. You'd have to say something first. Amen? And so Jeremiah seems to quote Obadiah. And so if this is correct, Obadiah is one of the earliest of the writing prophets. And it was during this Arab and Philistine invasion of Judah that Obadiah preached and prophesied God's judgment of what they should and should not have done. And you noticed in verse 10, they acted violently against the Jewish people. Verse 10 is a very general statement. But verse 11 through 14 tells us exactly what they did as Judah and Jerusalem were under attack. First of all, verse 11 says they did nothing. They did absolutely nothing. They stood, the Edomites stood on the sidelines, on the other side like the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And they did nothing. 
And God says, you did absolutely nothing, and therefore it is as if you were one of them because you did nothing. What an indictment that is. And then verse 12 says, not only did they do nothing, but they started doing something, and that is they rejoiced at the destruction of of Jerusalem. Verse 12 says they spoke proudly. The word is an interesting Hebrew word. It means they opened their mouth wide. They were shouting and singing and hollering hallelujah about the destruction of their neighbor. And then not only did they just rejoice at it and say, wasn't it wonderful? You remember when uh, 9-11 and the news broadcast and the, and the video of the Arab nation, people in the streets dancing and rejoicing at the successful attack against our country. Well, that's what the Edomites did when Jerusalem was, was invaded. And then not only did they rejoice, but they went another step further. They took advantage of their brother's calamity. When the attack was complete, they went into the city and looted it. They saw all the destruction and they rejoiced. And when it was done, they went in and got their part too. They, were, they became looters. They made the best of it for themselves. Man alive, I won't tell you what. It sounds like New York, Chicago, and last summer. They took advantage of their brother's calamity. And then, fourthly, not only did they eventually go into the city, but they stood at the crossroads when Jewish citizens of Jerusalem were escaping, were, were becoming refugees to get out of town, to get to safety. They stood at the crossroads, and instead of helping these refugees, they would capture them and turn them in. That's what the Bible says they did. That was the Edomites. And for this, God says to them in verse 10, I'm going to cut you off forever as a nation. And this did come to pass. In 70 A.D., you have never gotten a passport stamp from the nation of Edom because God has cut them off. So, and and notice another thing. It says, shame shall be with you forever. That's what he says. Shame shall cover thee. Shall cover thee. Bible knowledgeable people are... When you hear the nation, the name Edom, you don't think well of them to this day. As a matter of fact, the last thing you think of the Edomites was Herod, who was an Edomite who butchered the babies of Bethlehem at the birth of Christ. Shame covers them. Shame covers them, even to this day, amongst Bible knowledgeable people, Bible-believing people. So, with this historical background, let's consider this principle that God holds us accountable for how we treat others 
and apply it to us. We, we got to apply it to us. It's easy to amen when we're talking about the Edomites, but let's talk about the Mississippians, okay? Uh, let's talk about us and apply it to us in light of the relationships that we have. In, in light of uh, what we have here, what does this text say to us? How do we bridge, make a bridge? Cole and I were this week talking about preaching and and uh, we were talking about what is called, here's a big word, now this is just designed to impress you, uh, the hermeneutical arch, the then to the now. How do we take what happened then and apply it to the now? That's what we've got to do. And so there's a couple of things I want you to see. First of all, I want you to see the value that God places on brotherhood. The value that God places on brotherhood. The depths of Edom's sin is not only found in what they did and did not do, that was horrendous enough, but it is also found in who they did not do it for or who they did it to. Who? Notice while this was a sin against the whole nation of Judah, you will notice the text begins with this phrase, for the violence against thy brother. Thy brother. And in two different places of this text, he uses the term brother. This was very interesting how the Holy Spirit changes the name from Judah to Jacob. Jacob was the progenitor of the Judeans who were invaded. Esau was the father of the Edomites. And you recall from the scripture that Edom or Esau and Jacob were brothers. They were twin brothers. Twin brothers. Therefore, they were a brother nation. This were brother nation. Deuteronomy 23.7, God said to Judah, to, to the Jews, Esau, Edom is your brother. You do not abhor him. You do not hate him. You do not hate him at all because he is your brother. And then here God says to Edom, because of your violence against your brother, you will be covered with shame and destroyed forever. So Edom was guilty of a great sin, and it's a sin that's hard to define in our culture. I'm going to quote uh, one commentator who said, I wish there was a good English word to describe this sin, but unfortunately there does not seem to be. The best we can do is an awkward English word containing 15 letters, unbrotherliness. Unbrotherliness. Many sins have strong words. Gluttony is a word which has impact. Murder is a strong word. So is adultery, slander, deceit, self-indulgence. But unbrotherliness lacks the impact with us. So to be told this is the ultimate proof of pride and the historical grounds for God's utter destruction of a nation seems ludicrous. That God would destroy a nation because of its unbrotherliness. Not because of its adultery. Not because of rampant pornography in the land. Not because of corruption in its government. 
but because of how it was unbrotherly. God says, I'm going to destroy this nation. I want to tell you, folks, it's not that America is unbrotherly toward other nations. We're unbrotherly toward each other. And so, a, a terrible thing. What does unbrotherliness mean? It means acting toward my brother or any other family member in a way I should not act. There is something we have lost sight of in our nation. And I do fear uh, what's ahead of us, I have. And then when I read Obadiah and studied Obadiah to preach from it like we're doing, I want to tell you my fear for what lies ahead of us got on steroids. That God would destroy a nation because of its unbrotherness, how it treated its brother. That is incredible to me. And so I fear what is ahead of us. This is the truth about family, how we treat our family. Now, there are many definitions to family, and all of them apply right here. First of all, there's your related family. Family, a husband, a wife, your children, brothers and sisters, your parents. That's your related family. There's many families here today. We have precious families in our church. I wish I had a dollar for every single time when my wonderful pastor's wife, my wife, we sit and talk and we, and we think about you and my wife will say, they're such a precious family. If I had a dollar for that, I'd, I'd just have a dollar for that. But then there is your related family. Then there's your redeemed family, the people of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your church family. If you're saved, you have a church family. You need a church family. And it's, it's, it's us where you grow and learn and you're fed the Word of God and you are... Uh, a part of the family of God. If you're saved, you have a church family, redeemed family. You need a church family. How do you treat the people in your church family? In my very first church way out there in the country in northeast Texas, the minister of music owned a store across the street from the church. And um, it was one of those stores where you go in and you sign the ticket. And at the end of the month, you'd come in and pay your bill. And he, he played every, every manner of music. He played the fiddle. He played the mandolin. He played the guitar. And he was, he was the minister of music and the pianist all at the same time. And he's with the Lord now. His name was Ernest Hall. And him and Vermeil were precious, a precious family. And he would sit at the piano and he'd play, and he played by ear. And he would play the hymns and he would, he would get to go with one, one hand and he would lead with the other. And I don't know if it matched up or not, but it sure impressed me. Miss Tracy, you remember those days? And um, from time to time he would say, we're going to start out worship today and we're going to sing. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. And he would sing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. 
Born of the Spirit, he would sing. Washed in the blood. So you have a redeemed family. Another family is your racial family. Now, if you thought that when I said racial family that I'm thinking of only white people, you're wrong. There's only one race, the human race. Charles Darwin was the one who told us there's a bunch of races. But there's only one race, and that's the human race. Can I get a good amen from a predominantly white church? Amen. There's only one race, the human race. And people are created in the image of God and worthy of love and kindness and respect and help when you can give it to them and ministry when you can give it to them. So the question that Obadiah raises to us today is, are you doing what the Word of God says toward them? Are you honoring your parents? Are you honoring your parents? I had one person after we preached from that commandment one Sunday say, I need to talk to you. My parents were not honorable. And he shared with me the dishonor of mom and dad. And uh, I told him, I said, I will tell you this. I have a difficult time understanding that. I comprehend it, but I have a different time understanding that difficult time because my parents were godly mom and dad. I was blessed with wonderful parents, as many of you are. But not everybody is. And I admire them because many of them that I know who did not have honorable parents, they love the Lord and they serve the Lord and they're wonderful parents themselves. And so the thing to do when you don't have honorable parents is you be the parents they were not and then honor them in the best way you can and care for their needs and seek their spiritual growth in life. Maybe you need to make your parents your mission and win them to Jesus. And so, uh, what about loving your neighbor? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? What about loving your church family? Taking an interest in the burdens and needs of your church family. When you see a need, what do you do? Do you step up to the plate? Do you rejoice at anybody's downfall? Do you take advantage of the distress of others? Do you do anything to minister to others? Or do you stand on the sideline in your religiosity like the Levite and the priest of the Good Samaritan? Well, if you do that, I want to tell you God says you have not done what is required of thee and you might as well do them harm if you do not do them good. That's what God says right here in Obadiah. He told these Edomites, he said, you stand on the sideline and you were just like one of them who raided the city. And so, do you, do you love? Do you love your enemies in the human race? Do you care for people? So we see the premium that God puts upon brotherliness. But a second thing we see is the wrath that the wrath that God pours out on bitterness. The wrath that God pours out on bitterness. The Edomites teach us two lessons about bitterness toward a member of our related family. Um, 
in our redeemed family, in our racial family. First of all, he teaches us about the development of bitterness. Notice the development of bitterness. You want to avoid bitterness? This is what you need to do right now today. You need to identify where you are, what step you are on. And uh, that's the first thing you need to do. So let's look at the steps to bitterness, where it leads to. Step one is found in verse 11. Standing aloof when your brother stumbles. Whether it's related, whether it's redeemed, whether it's your racial family. Standing aloof. Doing nothing to help when you can. Doing nothing to encourage when you can. Doing nothing to aid when you can. Standing aloof. This is perhaps one of the predominant sins in the local church today is apathy, aloofness, apathetic. I read where one pastor told one of his key church members one day, I think the biggest issue we have in our church is apathy. And the church member looked at him and said, I don't care. That's about right, amen. But that's the first step of bitterness is when you don't care enough and you stand aloof on the sideline. The second step to bitterness is verse 12, searching information. If you will not lift a finger to help someone but want to know all the glory, the gory details and seek out gossip, you are in step two of bitterness. They didn't want to care at all, but they stood on those hillsides looking and say, man, look at that. Isn't that wonderful? Woo-wee, look at that. Think we ought to go down and help them? What you talking about? I'm not going to go down there and help them. That's a bunch of Jews. We're not going to do that. Searching information. Finding out something that you really don't need to know because you're not going to do anything positive about it anyway. Step three, rejoicing over their calamity. That's also in verse 12, rejoicing over their calamity. Solomon would write, rejoice not when when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord seize it. And it displeased him, and he turned away his wrath from him. Wow, isn't that a unique principle of God? That that if you rejoice over your enemy, God may see that and say, Okay, you're rejoicing over your enemy. I'm going to give your enemy opportunity to rejoice over you. And he turns the calamity away from your enemy to you. Isn't that an amazing thing? That's step three, rejoicing over their calamity. Step four. Also in verse 12, boasting attitude. A boasting attitude. You develop the attitude that you are the one who is right with God and they are not. You are better than them because you're the one left standing in good standing. And they're the ones who are suffering. They're the ones who are suffering. Amazing thing. First time as a pastor I ever encountered anything like that. It was election day, and I was dressed in snake boots and camouflage because I'd been out squirrel hunting, and I had to go, come out of the woods and go vote. So I'm standing in line voting, and uh, an old fella gets behind me in line, and he recognizes me. I don't know how. I was in camouflage, 
But he says, um, he said, you hear about what happened, oh, so-and-so? And I said, uh, yes, I did. It's, it's sad. Yes, I did. He said, well, I'll tell you one thing. If he had been living right, that wouldn't have happened to him. And I knew about this old guy behind me. And he was telling me that. Boy, I, I want to be honest with you. I had to bite my tongue because I sure wanted to come unglued, but it just wasn't the right place. Or come to think about it, maybe it was. That's when he said it. But boasting attitude. Well, he must be, he must be in the wrong because this calamity is coming upon him. You know what? That's what Job's three friends thought. Remember that? That's what, that's what the people around the cross thought when they looked at Jesus. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, but we did esteem him smitten and stricken of God. That's how they looked at Jesus. Step five, taking advantage of their calamity to promote yourself and vindicate yourself. Verse 13. Taking advantage of their calamity to promote yourself. You get to step five, you're heading down the wrong, you're pretty much in it. Step six is where you seek to inflict more pain and more hurt upon them. You say, preacher, I don't agree with that because when I've had somebody that I had issues with get into calamity, I sure might have done some of those other things and had such attitudes, but I've never went in and beat up on them some more. I never went in and tried to make matters worse. Well, you might have if you gossiped about it. That's what we call good preaching, whether you like it or not. And if you're a guest, this is, this is a, a Hebrew and Greek initiative here that says amen or oh me but you put more hurt on them by trying to embarrass them and belittle them with your tongue before others. Very convicting right here, isn't it? So the wrath that God pours out on bitterness, he tells us about the development of bitterness and hate and how it starts and it just creates a propensity to do terrible things and ingrains those terrible attitudes and hardens them. And then in verse 10, not only the development of bitterness, but we learn about the destruction of bitterness in verse 10. Shame will cover you. That will be something that will dominate you and stay with you all your days. Bitterness will never, ever leave you alone. It will always grow like kudzu. You know what kudzu is? If you've lived in Mississippi, you know what kudzu is. Kudzu doesn't stay in one place. It just takes over. And that's what bitterness will do. You ever met an old kudzu? I met many of them. I don't want to be one. And so he says... The destruction of inner shame will just cover you. It's what, it's what you will think about. It's what you will become known for. And then God says, I'll cut you off forever. That's what he told the nation of Edom. God will not bless bitterness. 
So what do you do? Well, preacher, you, you're pretty hard on us. I thought I'd enjoy Obadiah until today. What are you doing? Well, let me tell you what to do. Three things to do. You ready? Number one, forgive. Forgive. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springs up, trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. You need to forgive. The hatred between Israel and Edom stretches all the way back to when they were in the womb. Can you imagine trying to raise those two? Well, their parents didn't raise them either. One raised one, the other raised the other and turned them against each other. So... There's a good parenting lesson. We'll get to another day. But I know Jacob did wrong. You read the story of Genesis, the the Genesis account of Jacob's life. He was terrible. He lied. He cheated. He dishonored his father. He was a scoundrel. He was awful. As a matter of fact, his name means cheater. That's what they named him. He was, Jacob was somebody you don't want as your neighbor. He would be the cousin you do not invite to the family reunion. But that's who he was. And God changed his life. But it was bitter Esau. He was the one who was destroyed because he would not forgive. And the deeds he did here, those steps of bitterness that he took. And we'll see what God did in weeks to come. So you need to forgive. You know, every time... Every time, without exception, that I have preached a, a, a soul, whole message on forgiveness. I, I've preached on forgiveness to, at political um, events. I've preached on forgiveness to college football team. I've preached on forgiveness to small groups and in churches and meetings. And every time, without exception, there'll be at least one person who will come to me and say, I need to forgive. I need to forgive. And then they'll tell me who they need to forgive. A lot of times it's their parents. Sometimes it's a parent needing to forgive their children. Sometimes it's one church member needing to forgive another. Sometimes it's a pastor needing to forgive the church, and sometimes it's church members who need to forgive the pastor. But forgiveness is a great need, and it may be a great need in you. And that's the only way to get out of the steps of of bitterness is to recognize where you are and ask God to forgive you, and then you forgive. All it means is simply this. You give up your right to hold a grudge. That's all it means. It doesn't mean you condone it. Doesn't mean you start having, it doesn't mean you're gonna become best friends with that person. That's called reconciliation. We're not talking about reconciliation. We're talking about, you may not be able to have a relationship with them. You may never be able to sit down at their house for Thanksgiving dinner. But that doesn't mean you can't forgive them. You just give up your right to hold a grudge. And you give up your right to get even. And you seek when you can any healing. So you forgive. The second thing you need to do in response to this message is you need to do. You need to do. What do you need to do? Matthew 7, Jesus tells us, Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is how God would have us to live. 
especially as Christian people. What is this called? Tell me, someone tell me what it's called. The golden rule. I learned the golden rule when I was in elementary school at elementary school. Do they even teach the golden rule anymore? Do. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Not as you think or want, but as you would have them do unto you. That is hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to do everywhere. It's hard to do in traffic. Amen. It's hard to do everywhere. And then third, you need to repent. Because bitterness will not end for you or your heritage. If I am correct about when these events took place in the Arab-Philistine invasion during the days of Jehoram, you can fast forward 300 years and you have the Babylonians taking over the world. And they came in and they took Judah and they destroyed it. And they, they decimated it. They took people captive by the hundreds. A time of death and great destruction. A dark time in Israel's history. 300 years later. So here we have the Edomites standing on the sidelines saying, Go get them! Look at, look at the Philistines. Destroy them. Tear them up. Let's go in there and loot them. Let's not help them. And then 300 years later, you have another invasion, the Babylonians. And in Psalm 137, the singer writes about it, a poem about it. And it's called, uh, he, he, he writes, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. We wept when we remembered Zion. These are... Judeans singing this. We hanged our harps on the willows in the midst thereof. And they that carried us captive demanded of us a song. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? And then the singer says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember you, Jerusalem, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. And then the singer says, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem who said, Raise it, raise it, burn it down, burn it down, even to the foundation thereof. So 300 years later, you have another generation of Edomites doing the same thing their fathers did, the same bitterness their fathers held, they held, the same anger, the same hate toward their brothers, toward the same people. Burn it down, burn it down. Can a nation from one generation to another maintain its sin? Yes, it can, and so can individuals. So can individuals. Oh, what a powerful lesson for us today from the prophet Obadiah. Well, preacher, give us something that's gracious. I will. Jesus came unto his own. He became a part of the racial family. He became a man. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. 
and they nailed him to a cross because they hated him and they hated God. And he went to the cross, and this is what he said at the cross. Judge them with all wrath. Pour it out on them. Is that what he said? Nope. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He held no bitterness. He forgave them. And he helped them. Instead of standing on the sidelines of of heaven's gate, watching you and me die in our sin and go to a devil's hell. He did not stand there saying, look at that, look at that, look at them, I hate them. No, what did he do? He helped. He came down and he helped. He came down with the remedy. He came down with redemption. He did not let the enemy ransack us, the enemy of sin. He didn't let the devil have us and destroy us. He became one of us and jumped down and won a victory for us, fought the battle for us, fought the invasion for us on the cross. That's what he has done. And there is nothing, nothing that someone has done to you that can justify your bitterness when we have Christ. That's why the Bible says you forgive for the sake of Christ. You always hear a lot of sermons saying you need to forgive for your sake. Well, maybe you do, but I want to tell you the Bible says you forgive for the sake of Christ because Christ forgave us. That's what he did. Well, I'm done. Now it's in your hands. Now it's with you. Let's stand for our song of appeal. Every head bowed, let's pray, talk to the Lord. You just speak to the Lord right now. Now, Why don't you ask God this, and this is a good thing to do for any sermon you ever hear preached. God, show me what's in my heart that this text exposes and show me what I must do today. This is Cole Andrews, the family minister here at First Baptist Church, Ocean Springs. I want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into our podcasts and sermons today. We surely hope you have been blessed by the Word of God. I'd like to encourage you to visit our website, fbcosms.com, to learn more about our church. We sure would love to see you in church on Sunday. May God bless you.